the right amount of drunk for this. I have a million points. <laughs> Dead characters do not yield spin-offs. This is serious business. Greetings, CGI apes are taking over the planet, so grab a drink because this is serious business. I am Jeff, your host for this week's episode, and tonight I'm joined by John and Michelle once more. John, Hello. how is it going? Going well, Jeff, going well. Glad to hear it. So, John, if you yes. ran into a seemingly sentient ape in the middle of the forest while you're out hiking far away from civilization, mm-hmm. what would you do? Would you run or would you attempt to communicate? Would you do something like that? I would probably attempt to communicate because I, in the in the movie when that happened, I was like, I would not do, I would not pull a gun. I would would put hands up. I guess it's difficult having seen the movies and being in that mindset as opposed to just being in the forest and coming on something like that. But I would take it slow, hands up, nice and and easy, nice and slow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I I buy that. And I think... I'd uh, I'd read, I'd assess the situation. Because there's there's a lot of of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. The, the calm, quiet approach. And what, if anything, are you drinking this fine evening? I'm drinking a Trader Jose bourbon whiskey, Ooh. washing it down with um, a Harpoon Big Squeeze UFO, Ooh. Or, which is grapefruit juice, essentially. Yeah, but it's good. I believe you were drinking that on our last episode as well. Yep, yep. There's, uh, there's still a couple in the fridge that I'm, that I'm slowly but surely making my way through. <laughs> Since you're the only one drinking, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Good enough for a repeat uh, appearance. Cool. Uh, moving on, we got Michelle. Michelle, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Jeff. Glad to hear it. So, Michelle, you are out hiking in the middle of the forest. Mm-hmm. Far, far away from civilization. And yep. you come across uh, some semi-sentient apes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your reaction? Uh, I would probably be very shocked... Um, I probably would have my gun, but might not shoot toward, like hold it towards them. But I would be cautious because there's this group of animals and I might be able to scare them if I shoot it up in the air. Mm-hmm. So depending on how much of a conversation I'm able to have with them, I do like to have some kind of weapon available that I can get away for my own safety. But uh, I would certainly try to talk to them if I could. Although right. that's such a weird thing to hear myself say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> see, see if you can communicate, but with a very defensive posture. Yes. Yes, I see. No, that's that's not a bad, not a bad. Calm point. but assertive. Calm <laughs> but assertive, right? What if anything? You're drinking this fine evening. I am drinking mango papaya seltzer. Ooh, that's very mango good. Papaya. Yeah. I'm jealous. It's very fruity. Very jealous. So let's see, if I ran into some semi-sentient apes in the forest, I would probably run. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would, I would probably regret it instantly. Even if I got away, even if they didn't chase me or anything, I would, I would regret it. If they did chase me, I would regret it even more. Mm-hmm. But just seeing something like that, I think I wouldn't be able to... You would freak. I would, I, would, I, would, I would certainly not, like, scream. I would not attack them. But I would, I would be out of there as quickly as I possibly could. Probably wouldn't end too well for me, but it, yeah. I, I it, would, be, it would be better than, than shooting one of them. Yeah. Well, it also, I think you'd have to gauge a situation. Because if it's like a, a really, you know, banged up, gnarly uh, right. 
evil looking one like right, Koba, I would probably then then the gun might come out. Yeah, because he just he just looked bad. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's clearly the the evil ape. No, I think I uh, I envision it more along the lines of two apes with with spears or walking sticks, like it was kind of during the first encounter in the movie. Oh. I am also drinking uh, life giving water tonight, just because it's it's one of those nights for me. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes you just need water. Leaving me out by myself here, huh? That's okay, Sorry, no. Sean. Sorry. All right. Oh, fine. That's fine. Um, You're drinking for the two of us. The three of us. <laughs> so tonight, of course, we are talking about. Dawn of a Rise of Planet of the Apes. I've now got them confused. Dawn. The, Dawn. the new one uh, that's in theaters now, which is a shockingly uh, well-received movie, both from audiences and critics. I was mm-hmm. not expecting that. Me uh, neither. Yeah. There will be minor spoilers in this episode, of course. We will be discussing it in detail. Then again, there's not too much to spoil here. Maybe a few little things that that are important to the plot, but it's it's a pretty... It's pretty procedural. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the things that are, are going to happen, you can kind of figure out are happening. But of course, this is the continuing saga of Caesar and his apes. Uh, the first movie where he is raised by James Franco and becomes intelligent based off of scientific experiments, of course, trying to cure Alzheimer's, much like the sharks in Deep Blue Sea. He's now out in the woods with uh, an entire large tribe of apes, and people have been dying left and right from what they're referring to as the simian flu. So we pick up with Caesar uh, not having seen any humans in two years or so, and a robust, almost utopian ape society with uh, great-looking jungle gyms and a little teaching area and just a fantastic house. Uh, It's basically the Ewok village. Uh, (laughs) But then, of course, humans come back, and and conflict quickly follows. Let's start with theater experience. John and Michelle, uh, what was it like when you went to see this movie? We went to uh, a new theater for us, the Showcase Deluxe at mm. Patriot Place in Foxborough. Ah. I mean, it was like a really super nice theater. We we went to it not really sure of if it was going to be one of those nice ones like uh, Braintree with the recliners, but it's a very new, very nice theater. I would say it was maybe about half full. Yeah. We went we went to a, like um, a matinee. We, it was like a one o'clock show. Mostly adults. I didn't really see any kids there or anything, but pretty I mid felt, range. Yeah, I felt like it was actually most. Uh, we had a lot of older adults, like mm-hmm. people who maybe grew up with the uh, Planet of the Apes, like the original right. ones. Like yeah. I felt like there were a lot more middle aged people around us than people our age, yeah. perhaps. But I mean, overall, pretty standard. Enjoyable, enjoyable experience overall, yeah. I would say. Gotcha. I went and saw it at the Braintree ah, AMC. And I sat in the second row and I reclined almost all the way. Uh, oh, bastard. And my vision was filled, filled by the screen, <laughs> causing problems for my neck. It was pretty nice. Mine, uh, you know, my theater was maybe three quarters of the way filled, but I saw it on Sunday. And I was actually shocked because it did seem like there was that older crowd in there who, you know, maybe grew up with the original films, but they also brought a lot of their children. There were a lot of small children. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, some of the small children, of course, like to uh, proclaim what was occurring on the screen every now and then. It wasn't too frustrating, (laughs) but, but there definitely were a few, like, 
that one's the bad one or you know oh no uh. <laughs> I, I find that kind of thing charming when you go to like a Pixar movie, but I would think if you if it's something like Planet of the Apes, I would be annoyed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I found it kind of endearing too because it was it wasn't like just small enough amounts that it didn't really it didn't right. really grind my gears as Peter Green. <laughs> and and it was all at big moments, so it it kind of added to the fun in a weird yeah. sort of way. But yeah, uh, did you did you guys like the movie? I did. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it was uh, fine. Right. Yeah, it was. It was fine. Your glowing fine endorsement. So, uh, what were some of the things that prevented it from being a, a an excellent movie in your eyes, Michelle? I feel like it was just long. Mm-hmm. It was just. It was a little long. It was probably like twenty to thirty minutes longer. I feel like than it needed to be. And I'm not even sure what about it they should have cut. But I, it just felt so long towards the end. And, I mean, John, you reassured me that it was actually, like, not too long. It's when actually I saw, kind of short for... Yeah, when I saw the running time, I thought that I did. I think that I, I thought that it was on the shorter end of a running time for modern... Well, it's two so, hours and five minutes, so I would, I would call that fairly standard by, like, summer epic. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not saying... Know. I mean, I, I agree that it, it could have, I mean, it could, it probably could have clocked in at like 145. Um, but, you know, nowadays all these big summer blockbuster temple movies are like right. in two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes. I thought the running time was fine. I, I do remember thinking in that la- in that third act that, all right, it's, we can wrap <laughs> yeah, it up now. Now we're in the subway and now there's yeah. Gary Oldman again. And, but yeah. I mean, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it too terrible. You know, like, yeah. it could have been shorter, but it wasn't like, oh, God, finish it up already. Right. Yeah. No, I think one of the, the reasons for the feeling of length was probably the flatness of the human side of things. And it wasn't absurdly flat, but certainly compared to the apes, you, you get someone like Gary Oldman in a movie, and he's got a few scenes in this movie, but there's zero development for his character ever. I think it's paycheck for him. Yeah, he. He's... I mean, no offense to Gary Oldman; he's a really great actor. But I mean, I, I think that they didn't give him too much to do. Yeah, it was it, he was not able to showcase how good of an actor he really is because his character just didn't have really much behind it. He was just sort of generic human leader guy, mm-hmm. and you know, there, there, his decisions were procedural. They were, and yeah. and, and God, that speech before the battle. I was like, Gary Oldman was not the right person for this role. His voice just doesn't work for for that kind of a thing. Because normally, you know, you, you get a rousing, you know, speaking of speeches, the Bill Pullman speech, of course, from <laughs> this episode. You get a rousing pre-battle humanity speech, and you're you're feeling very pumped by it. And that speech was kind of, you know, hey, they're coming and they're not people. And we are people. So <laughs> we'll beat them. Good luck. <laughs> I feel like all of the human part of this story was half developed. That speech yeah. is half developed. All the characters are half developed. Even our main guy. Yeah, I, I remember. Like, I, I mean, he seems like a nice guy, but I know that he cares really a lot about his son. I think That's, it was all I really know about him. I don't know if it was, um, and maybe a little bit of both, but um, I don't know if it was just the way that the part was written or it was the actor, but I didn't find any of the characters really that endearing. You know, like, 
they're fine. They, they, Carrie Russell, Felicity, you didn't care about her. Yeah, but again, she didn't really do much. None of the okay. she has like she has like five words. Yeah. I'm yeah. an ape doctor. I mean, yeah. I think that the story that, I've got that antibiotics that will magically work for you. Yeah, it was all. I think all the human stuff was like you said, Jeff. It was all very standard, very serviceable. The, I mean, the real the real good character stuff is is with the apes. Yeah, so let's talk about the, that a little bit. One of the most impressive things about the movie to me was the CGI usage and character animation on the apes themselves. They yeah, uh, really good. Yeah, it was super good. And one of the reasons it was so good was because it actually created empathy. And I don't mean empathy in the, you know, you feel for a certain event that occurs or anything like that. I mean empathy in that these became, these these computer-generated constructs became authentic characters that I really bought and believed in. Oh. I, I definitely felt like their decisions and their development was, was rich and real. You know, oddly enough, they were more compelling than their human counterparts by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, even the side characters, even, even Maurice. Oh, Maurice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, who was talking to the kid whose name nobody remembers. <laughs> You know, I was more interested in what Maurice was getting out of that book than, than the kid who was sitting there drawing apes all the time. Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree. I, I remember thinking, might sound strange, but I remember like thinking to myself that I was I actually forgot that they were. <laughs> I forgot that they were apes and really just got like they're they're real characters. I mean, I think more than anything, you get you get drawn into the relationships and the development of those characters. So you sort of, I mean, I, I, I started to forget like the animal side of it, that they were animals. Cause it was just, I mean, the, the relationships between them were just really, really believable. The other thing about the special effects is that I had actually just watched the first one rise of the planet of the apes the night before. So it was pretty fresh in my mind. And I remember thinking like the visual effects have come a long way between just these two movies, which I think the first one came out in 2011 or 2012. So not that long ago. But, I mean, I think they made huge, huge strides in improvements in the quality. Because the first one, I mean, like, it looks good, but it still looks very much like it's it's a special effect. Whereas in this one, it's much, much more believable and, and more lifelike. But there's some pretty good videos on YouTube of you know just side by side comparisons mm-hmm. of them and it's it's pretty impressive. You can tell that like there's there's real performances mm-hmm. going on by like I mean not just Andy Circus but all the actors that are doing the other parts. Definitely. Like I, I think that you know Andy Circus is sort of like the poster boy for motion capture and I think that even though there's not a lot of other well-known names. I think that in the next couple of years, as the as this type of technology becomes more popular, hopefully more actors get recognition for that type of performance. Because on one of the behind-the-scenes videos that I watched, the guy that played Koba, I think they had mentioned that he was in some. You know, he's done a lot of other motion capture in you know some pretty big movies. So I wonder. I wonder if it'll be like a, an up-and-coming avenue of of acting yeah that wouldn't surprise me that and voice acting you know probably are getting very big so did you guys have a favorite ape Mm, i think i really like maurice yeah maurice was pretty awesome i like caesar 
I yeah, mean, Caesar, I, Caesar is good too. After watching the first one, I thought that he was going to be essentially like turn his back on mankind and, and sort of more go over to the dark side as opposed to being like this very level-headed diplomatic figure. Mm-hmm. And plus, I think from a character standpoint, I, I think that that was the best performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I found him to be a lot like Willem Dafoe in Platoon, which is a sort of absurd thing to say, but <laughs> there are odd mirrors to uh, what happens in Platoon that occur in this movie. I definitely, I actually think, uh, even though he was a bit of an empty character, Caesar's son was my favorite. I feel like he had the most development. Yeah. He's kind of sitting there between these two schools of thought, one being kind of this rage-oriented Koba, and the other being uh, his more level-headed father. And, uh, you know, being young, of course, he first gravitates towards towards the rage. He is resentful and easy to anger. Um, and, you know, he also saw some pretty bad things happen. You know, I, I think he was there when uh, that initial ape got shot. So it makes sense. But then by the end of the movie, he, he, he sees full spectrum kind of where that, that thinking leads, and he doesn't like it. He kind of realizes that it's it's not the right way to go. I actually was surprised that Caesar came back from the dead, so to speak. Yeah, so we I were too. Yeah, I, I, I thought for sure that he was he was all done. Yeah, and you know his name's Caesar, of course. It's like Etu Koba. Etu. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be about the son, basically, then taking over the tribe from Koba after Koba goes too far. But you know, I was still pretty happy with how it turned out. It was great to see giant, you know, ape fight on top of exploding tower. You know, who, who doesn't like that? Um, I, I was actually expecting more of a, a downer ending. <laughs> like I thought, yeah, me too. I thought that Koba definitely killed Caesar, and the movie was going to essentially end on like a, a little bit of a larger cliffhanger where Koba leads the you know leads the apes, and that sort of begins like the dawn of the planet of the apes, where like the apes sort of take over. But and it was going to be a little bit more like the end. Like, I thought it was going to pave the way to something that was a little bit closer to the original movies where, you know, the apes are the superior species and they they dominate over the humans. So I thought that's how it was going to turn out. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised that Caesar ended up pulling through. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're they're setting up for a third movie for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. I think the, the war is going to be the next one. Yeah. But I don't get it because, okay, so the simian flu gets rid of, like, a huge percentage of humanity, right? Like, I don't know what we're talking, 90%, maybe more. But that's still a lot of humans that are left. And we just see San Francisco. Yeah. And I believe that Caesar's troop is the only kind of troop of its kind. Right. I don't know if the simian flu made other apes smart and then magically they banded together. Right. But I feel like to call this planet of the apes is kind of silly because yeah. it's just like city outside of San Francisco of the apes. Yeah. You know, like humanity is going to take over pretty easily, even if there's only like 5% of humans left. Right. Well, that's, the, that's a good point. In the beginning, in the opening credits, they sort of give the impression that mankind is pretty much extinct. You know, so I think we're led to believe that humans are almost on the brink. But I mean, then you brought up a good point that, like, well, if there's all these people outside San Francisco, surely there's that many people outside of every other major uh, Boston. Market city. Yeah, and we have no reason to believe that there's more intelligent apes anywhere else yeah. in the world. They do say in the intro that the survival rate is 1 in 500, so it's about 0.2% of humanity is left. Shh. 
But, uh, I, and I want to talk more about this, but I think it is time for our first refill break. But when we get back, let's continue this thread. Okay. We'll be our meat. Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. <gasps> he can talk. He can talk, 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 he can talk! I can sing! Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Oh, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! What's wrong with me? Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, they said the survival rate was 1 in 500, which would, you know, if we're going with a 7 billion people estimate, math, 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 math. <laughs> oh, man. So 1% of a billion is 100, yeah, 10 million. And we're talking, so we're talking about 2 million humans left, give or take, throughout the entirety of the world. That's not that many. Of course, that there are way fewer apes, you know. It, that was one thing that was bad about this movie, is that it did do a poor job of getting you to understand the size of this ape civilization. You know, at the beginning they throw out the number 80, and then when they show up, they're like, that's way more than 80, but it doesn't really look like that many, you know? <laughs> it's like they, they show up with an army in front of the human colony, and... It's, pro I don't know, like, if I were to look at that, I'd be like, that is a couple hundred apes. Um, yeah. So there, there was no sense of, of, of the real sort of dominant situation. All that said, I think the original Planet of the Apes movies are, like, absurdly in the future. Yeah. They're, it's meant to be, like, way, way down the line, as opposed to in the, the, the near future. As evidenced by the fact, I think, that in those movies, the apes have clothing, they have somewhat futuristic technology. Yeah, there's much <laughs> more evolution that, that's happened. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who knows? It could be that, uh, you know, the remnants of humanity just continue to wipe each other out because we've become too stupid for our own good, uh, according to the lore. Or uh, it could be that the apes just really slowly build up. Because, I mean, from from north of San Francisco, you head up into northern California and all of those forests, and I'm sure that there's plenty of ample opportunity for their ape civilization to thrive, given how good they seem to be at living in the woods. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. It could I, don't think that, I don't think that it's beyond any basic exposition, you know, like any explanation. I think it's conceivable for them to continue on. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. But on that on that note, you know, I didn't buy the battle scene at all. Which one? The the big battle scene where the apes break into the colony. You know, I I could buy the ambush at the armory. There was there was definitely some confusion, some procedural problems where like where was this armory? It was like at a fort somewhere that was farther away, but like so the apes like overrun the armory, but somehow they know about it at the colony before the apes get there. Yeah. It was like I was a little well, there was a guy who there. ran to them, but, right? But that but, guy who ran to them was probably way slower than the apes, and if he ran to them, then how far away is that fort? I, I just, yeah. you know, it was it, that that whole bit was a little confusing. Also, when Koba first stole the guns from those two guys, it was like, were they just like three miles away from everybody else? I I, I was just confused. There seemed to mm -hmm. be no like no other people around for ages who were even remotely aware of the fact that like two guys got slaughtered. Yeah. Uh, and and Muir Woods is kind of far from the downtown San Francisco too. Yeah. 
So I feel like it should have taken Koba a little bit longer yeah. to get there. And yeah, that's true. Yeah, I chalk that all up to movie magic in the end, though. You know, whenever whenever we watch anything that takes place in Boston, like uh, the, the Departed or the Town or anything, they're always like doing a car chase scene through the north end and then like suddenly they're on 93 and then suddenly <laughs> they're by Fenway and you're just like, mm. um, but uh, you know, it, it, it's a movie so I can, I can kind of forgive it that, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I was bothered by the apes actually managing to overrun the defenses of the outer colony because I feel like it was a solvable problem i don't i don't typically want to harp on things that like don't feel realistic in a movie about you know apes taking over the world but all they i think all they really had to do was make the colony look less defensible and i would have been fine or cut out the tank yeah you know those those details those moments you know gary oldman shooting the rocket launcher into the giant bunch of conveniently explosive barrels Stuff like that. I was like, the apes are not winning this fight. Like they, they, they are not going to break into this fortress. And then it was like, suddenly they did, and it was fine. And there were tons of apes who were a okay, despite the fact that when the machine gun was first employed in World War One, it killed like two thousand people in a day right mm-hmm. away. Because mm-hmm. people who don't have experience charging at a machine gun just charge at the machine gun, and it kills all of them. So I didn't. I didn't really. Plus, buy. these guys were also excellent shots for never having held a gun before in their lives. Right, all of they the felt apes. no recoil. No, yeah. just no. Their horses were shockingly not scared. That's a big yep. thing. Like horses do not do well in those situations at all. But I, I don't want to. I don't know. I'm being, I'm being a buzzkill. <laughs> but we digress. Yes, yeah. we digress. We digress. <laughs> yes, we digress. I liked pretty much the entirety of the story of this movie. I felt like it was very solid. And oddly enough, you know, I, if I'm being totally honest, I didn't feel like it was too long when I was sitting there and watching it in the theater. I actually felt like it was faster than its runtime. Uh, it could be that I had kind of I, I knew what to expect, or that I'm I'm better at handling slow burns. But I I sat there and I I was. I was pretty captivated the whole time. I think I, I might have just been, you know, so intrigued by how well the apes were portrayed that it didn't really matter to me that the human stuff was kind of a second thought. So so that's me. I did want to bring up one other thing and get your guys' take on it in that I was a bit bummed out that there was basically no female ape representation. Yeah. Was- well, there were no females in this movie besides Carrie Russell and yeah, the wife. Right. Uh, and also, apes do not deliver babies that way. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah. Oh, look, there it is. And now she's holding it. Hooray. You know. Yeah. Yay. But, but yes, there were, I think she was the only female, the only female in the colony that I could tell. And she was they, having babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was sick and having babies. Yeah, which oddly enough, I think is part of why I bring up Platoon, because Platoon to me is like a very dude-centric movie, and this this I feel was similarly unnecessarily dude-centric. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the ape civilization was a little too uh, idealized and a little too patriarchal. You know, I get it, Caesar's the first one, and I get it, you're trying to portray like a primitive society. That just bugged me a bit. I was like, why why couldn't one of Caesar's inner circle be be a lady ape. Why? Why mm-hmm. not? You know, <laughs> or at least have one present. Yeah, and not just birthing his baby. Right, and they they did the whole like put the women and the children in the woods. 
Yeah, uh, next they'll be pulling out the excuse of, well, it would have cost so much money to animate a female ape. Well, for what it's worth, I noticed that um, when I was watching some of the the making of videos, the the actor that portray it's a it's a female actor that portrays Maurice, mm-hmm. I think. So that character could have been a female ape. Yeah, they could have easily done that. They it, they didn't even need the to do anything. One? They could have just renamed, you know, the the character. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone would have been like, oh, that's that's not a female ape, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's not a female baboon. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it just seems a little a little strange. Mm-hmm. The beginning of as we're going into the third act, when Koba shoots Caesar. I was kind of like white knuckled, like oh my god, I was gonna, like I, yeah, I was kind of tense and on edge, and so I, I thought that it did a really good job of like building the suspense throughout the whole sequence because I wasn't quite sure if Caesar was gonna make it out of there or you know if he was gonna. I thought he was dead. So, yeah, yeah. I, I really wasn't sure if he was gonna you know make it to the end of that movie. So I, I thought that they did a good job of keeping the momentum going through the, the, the final third of the movie. Because I, I thought that, like, it may have had a little bit of a slow start, sort of, like, getting itself mm-hmm. going. But mm-hmm. once the once the third act, the final confrontation started, it was it was a pretty good roller coaster of a ride. Mm-hmm. It's the final countdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, even though I wasn't too into the humans when, uh, when Maurice turns and says, run to them. Uh, after, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh. Dear. Yeah, that was uh, good. I like when who's the what's the name of the lead guy, our lead guy? Malcolm. Malcolm. Yeah, it was an M name. Yeah. <laughs> I like when he goes for the first time into the colony too, where they bring him up to Caesar. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty and you see like just him they travel and just him trying to communicate with everybody. I think I think that was a good part too. Yeah. I think I just liked whenever Caesar spoke, particularly when he was speaking, you know, authoritatively. You know, it was it was similar to probably the best moment in the first movie when 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 he speaks for the first time. Um, but just him, him doing his APL, his very intimidating APL. Mm-hmm. Although he only seems to initially know the words "go" and "no," mm-hmm. but those are very intense words when yelled. Turns yeah. out, so I definitely like that. Cool. Well, I think uh, I think it's about time for final thoughts and ratings, unless uh, you guys have anything else to say. So we will take our second refill break of the episode and then head right into that. Cool. I hate every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. And we're back, so it's time for uh, yet another edition of our final thoughts and ratings. 
so let's actually start with Michelle on that one. Michelle, what are your final thoughts on Dawn or Rise or the beginning? <laughs> whatever this uh, movie yeah, was. Yeah, whatever this movie is called. I, I thought I thought it was good. I, I like the story. I like the apes part. I found them to be the most compelling. I thought it was a little long, but I thought it was a good summer movie. You have a lot of action. You have a fair amount of story. You have these really good-looking, intriguing characters. Um, so the visual effects alone, I think, are worth seeing. But I think overall, a good, a good summer movie. I think it deserves the you know Rotten Tomato score that it has right now. Cool. So on a scale of one to five allusions to Animal Farm, <laughs> what do you give this movie? Uh, I would probably give it a three. Three out of five allusions to Animal Farm. Cool. So let's move on to John. John, what are your final thoughts? I really liked it as well. I think that it was, more than anything, it was a very refreshing summer movie in that it had a good amount of action. It was a pretty decent thrill ride. Not the most intelligent summer movie, but I mean, I yeah. think that it was, it was, it was smart enough. It, it made a very good, honest effort to be a pretty coherent film. And in this day and age, in this age of summer movies, I think that it delivered pretty well. So it was nice to go to a summer movie and not have an entire city destroyed for two hours. So I really liked it. And I think I'm, I'm a fan of these movies now, so I, I look forward to future additions to the, to the saga. Mm-hmm. Cool. So on a scale of one to five tear-jerking videos shot on a handheld camera discovered by an ape. And I, that, that, that scene brought, I'm not going to lie, a little, little tear in my eye. <laughs> what do you give this movie? I would say a 3.8. Whoa. 3.8? Yeah. It's real specific. And getting fun, that's right. Man. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thin, sharp blade. Mm-hmm. Cut at the 3.8 margin. Cool. So my final thoughts are that I was very, very pleased to see this movie uh, exceed all expectations. Uh, I feel like there was very good subtext, you know, in the conflict between the characters. You know, I think I think parts of it were a bit predictable. Parts of it could have been a little more energetic. But I, I didn't care while I was watching it too much. I enjoyed the fact that it was dark and intense, but that it also had a, a, a somewhat upbeat ending. Uh, as upbeat as you can have. Yeah, as upbeat as you can have, given the circumstances. Kind of true detective style. Yeah, I just I just was pleasantly surprised all around. So, on a scale of one to five pieces of human work, <laughs> I give this movie four. Four pieces of human work. Pretty good. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you, John and Michelle. That about wraps up our discussion on Dawn or Rise of Planet of the Apes. You know, the beginning. Uh, I, I just, I can never remember which one this one is. <laughs> it is very confusing. Because <laughs> they essentially, at the end of the day, both kind of mean the same thing. Yes, it's really the same title mm-hmm. for two different movies. But the other large, large event that was occurring this weekend that had me glued to my computer is the International Valve's massive Dota 2 tournament with an $11 million prize pool. $11 million prize pool. Whoa. That is a lot of dollars in an industry being esports that is not used to that kind of money. Uh, Jeff, quick question. So, like, if the prize is $11 million this year and it was only $1 million, this is the fourth international, and what they've been doing is basically they've started crowdfunding the prize pool. 
So, wow. so the way Dota 2 works is it's a completely free-to-play game, but you can buy cosmetic items for your characters in the game, usually for a few bucks. And people, you know, get into doing this because they like supporting the, the game, and they also enjoy having, like, a little decorative thing on their guy that makes... Or, or girl that makes uh, makes them look special or different. So Valve puts together kind of this package along with kind of a big brochure, interactive brochure for the event called the Comp- Compendium, and they charge $10 for it. And 250 of every purchase goes to the prize pool. So people, people really get into this. They did it for the first time with TI3, and the prize pool ended up at like 3.5 six or seven million dollars and then this year it exploded this year it just they were past that like the first day and it ended up going all the way up to like 10.8 last i checked and people assume it's going to resolve at around 11 so it's it's basically all the the power of crowdfunding so we're going to throw it over to uh, a set of my favorite swedes and uh, <laughs> we, we will we will discuss a little bit of what we saw this past weekend, and then uh, pull it back to John and Michelle for Geek of the Week. So, by the power of editing. In another time and space, I am here with uh, my two favorite Swedes, Steve and Marcus. How's it going, guys? Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Oh, doing hey. well. So real quick, what are you both drinking, if anything? Uh, start with, starting with Steve. I am drinking an Apra Hops beer. It's apricotty Apric- and hopsy. Apricotty and hopsy. So sweet and bitter. Sounds actually. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Frankly, it's, it's, it's the <laughs> nodes. What are you talking about? This apricot flavor in all sorts of beer. Magic Hat Number Nine has apricot in it. All right, all right. Shut, shut me right up. <laughs> uh, and Marcus, what if anything are you drinking this fine evening? I'm drinking a Star Hill. The beer is called The Love. The Love. Oh. It, Can you say it with uh, with like the appropriate kind of Barry Manilow or Barry White voice? The beer is called The Love. Excellent. Yeah, close enough. <laughs> yeah, no, it works. It works. And then when you get drunk, you can say, I'm feeling the love. Feeling the love. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about the International, which has just finished its first, is it three phases? Yeah, yes, we're, we just passed, we're on the third phase now. Right. So all that's left now is the main event next weekend. Uh, so we've gone from how many teams total? It would be 19 teams who arrived in Seattle, uh, four of whom were part of the play-ins. We are now down to the top eight who are making all, no matter what, an absurd amount of money. Yeah. Um, they are making over... a year's worth of money. <laughs> well, it's over $10 million all told, right? Right, For, all uh... told. So, so uh, the least amount of money a top eight team can win is $510,000 at this point. <laughs> it still could grow a little bit. And you know what? That $510,000 is 4.75% of the total price pool. Yeah. <laughs> but guys, after taxes, that's only, you know. That is after taxes, motherfucker. Val oh pays God. that shit. <laughs> that's how ridiculous this is. So basically, eighth place in this tournament is like at least two or three times the normal first place prize pool at a large esports event. This prize pool is larger than the Masters. 
yeah. like golf tournament. <laughs> so it's safe to say that the crowdfunding that Valve did was effective this year. Obviously, it took them a while to get into a position where uh, the compendium model would work. Last year, they did it, and the prize pool got up to, I think, 3.6. 3 million or something, yeah, yeah. Something like that. But this year, it just exploded. It was like all the pieces were in place, and it, it worked out really well. And But from here, it's only going to get bigger. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely true. Uh, well, you know... N- n- I don't know. It's tough to say, actually, because the spike was so huge, it might kind of level off for a little while, but we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. You know, that said, before we dive into specifically what's been happening in the tournament, I've, I've had this conversation with a bunch of other people and wanted to have it quickly with you guys. The prize pool distribution is kind of fucked up, and it, it bothers me. I don't like the fact that first place is nearly half the money. I feel like esports has, has got this top-heavy problem, and it's it really hurts things in the, the oh, but the stakes have to be high it makes the stakes that much higher it does make the stakes that much higher but i mean i would rather have an extra few years of tournaments than one tournament with absurd stakes because you know if you look at starcraft which plateaued and then kind of you know has been slowly on the down downfall i'm sure it'll spike up again when legacy of the void comes out several really large organizations nasl uh, you know mlg kind of ran away from starcraft etc pretty much everything except for the wcs and the stuff in Korea has basically fallen apart because there's not enough money. The organizations don't have enough money. It's just, I feel like it doesn't get spread around the way it should be. And this thought process behind these really top-heavy prize pools, I think, is part of the issue. You end up with organizations like Navi who, uh, and Alliance who've been around for a long time and can really sustain themselves because they win those top prizes. But then everything beyond that gets thrown into this void of disarray where like teams are constantly gobbling up other teams and there's no room for growth. Like what Navi did this year with Navi US, that's like an investment in the future and that's unheard of in esports. And the only reason they were able to do that was because they've made so much money at the very, very top. I want like five or six organizations that are able to invest in the future to have like a minor league team or something like that that they can pull from instead of the teams constantly disbanding and then reforming or being bought up by other organizations. So that's my little rant. Yeah. I think for the international, because the, or at least this year, because the prize pool is so ridiculously huge. Mm-hmm. That you can do this type of super high end because these top eight teams are all getting enough money to make at least three or four teams. You yeah, know? but do you really so, think that the jump from ninth place to, to eighth place should be a factor of ten? Because that's what it is. Well, that's like that's like one best of three series decides whether you go home with ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars. Well, yeah, but that's player. what sports are. Whether but it's no other sport does sports. it to that degree. And Absolutely, the difference they, the difference between the difference between making the Champions League and not making the Champions League in soccer is eighty seven million dollars at the minimum. <laughs> like that's how, and that's the difference between fourth place and fifth place. Right, but like, that's you know league by league. That's not that's not a perfect comparison. Like tennis never has prize pools like this. Golf never has prize pools like this. The distributions are always considerably more even. Granted, getting into the tournament itself, getting into the PGA itself, or getting into Wimbledon is hard. But the actual you never you never have a situation in those sports where half of the money goes to one person. Right, but it's also not a team sport. Those are all individual that's, sports. That's true. That's so like true. the idea is you gotta then divide that by a factor of five. Each player gets a right. million dollars if you win five million dollars or something right. like that right so then you're talking about like well the difference between the winner of the masters and the second place in the masters is more than a million dollars so mm-hmm. 
that that would be my counter to that. It's yeah. just it's different yeah. in team sports. What would be interesting to see is there's there's no the leagues don't have any control over how these teams are made, right? They just sort of de- like the the actual organizations decide who they want on their teams. Mm-hmm. I'm so interested to see if Dota in particular because I don't know that much about the individual ones like StarCraft and stuff like that, but like uh, with Dota, can it, could it turn into like an NBA basketball where like they're like free agents and like you know DK is like well well Dendi we'll pay you a salary. It's not about you winning tournaments anymore. Right. Like like you will pay you this much like salary, right. and then you get like bonuses for winning tournaments and things like that. Yeah, that's like, really did that for a while. They they didn't do that. They, it, never anywhere out of Korea certainly. Mm-hmm. Dota two has the potential to really be an international you know, professional community, and I think that would be great. Similar to that, which is why I brought up, like, tennis and other sports like that, because they're they're similarly international. Yeah, so. yes, but I consider it more like basketball, honestly. And again, it is because it's 5v5 and team sports and right, things like that, right. and you have, like, supports and things like that. Right. Like, I consider the sports like the point guard, you know, right. and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I come from a very different background when it comes yeah, to this. Yeah, I, I, think, so. I think you're definitely right from, like, uh, the actual nature of how the sport is played is much more similar to basketball. But I think business-wise, it's currently more similar to more individualized sports like uh, mm-hmm. MMA or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, let's talk about what's happened to TI4 thus far. And I guess I, I want to start with just what, what are the big surprises, big observations that you guys have had over the past uh, week of watching... A bajillion hours of Dota, and let's start. Yeah. Let's start yeah. with Marcus on that. So the meta seems to be uh, going down the east versus west line again, and so the eastern teams seem to be really, really into this uh, this like uh, fifteen minute, twenty minute push, which is uh, totally different from the old eastern meta. <laughs> just like a forty. Yeah, we're, we're just, we're just <laughs> farm triple buyback. <laughs> yeah, six divine rapiers. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's happening is that the you know like shadow shaman is not getting banned or is starting to get banned, and like there's this like weird skyrath kick that people were getting onto with early roams. But the but the thing that seems to be winning out now is you get like a crab, you get like a shadow shaman, and then you get a tide hunter. They can never team fight you, and you just barrel down and take all the towers, right. you get way more money than they do, and then it just snowballs out of control, and they never take a tower. Right. And Certainly. that seems to be what is really... There's really a, yeah, there's a lot more lopsided victories this TI as compared to last left TI. Now, that might be because the cream of the crop hasn't risen up yet. We're not towards the end, but... Right. My theory... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that, that, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah, my theory behind uh, the phase three lopsided victories are that after the first best of threes... You're playing for seeding, and obviously seeding is very important. You know, it, it's a huge factor in determining what position you're you're likely to be in. But you don't want to reveal everything you can do. You want to save stuff for the main event. So I think I think this is teams just sort of trying their off strats. And you know, the, we're, we all know we're good at playing these heroes, but we didn't really like practice this strategy. So it will either I, I feel like it either works spectacularly well or it falls apart completely. And, yeah. you know, obviously the, the some games, like at the beginning of the phase, like the Liquid versus LGD game, were high stakes because the loser got knocked out and Liquid still got destroyed. But I don't, mm-hmm. I feel like that was a slightly different circumstance. Yeah. The, I think that was uh, tournament pressure getting to them. Yeah, and also, like, when you get trampled in a first game, it's super hard to pick yourself up and fight a good second I'm game. sure. It, it yeah. certainly seemed very difficult for them because that second yeah. game they were not sure of themselves at all they weren't all on the same page but i do want to 
just touch on Team Liquid for a sec because they were the big surprise this year. Yes, they were. Um, and I guess it's kind of ironic because the surprise was they did as well as they should have based on last year's TI. Yeah, but they, they were a big surprise too. Right. It's that, it's that in the year between last year's TI and, and this one, Team Liquid kind of fell off. They had a lot of trouble. They struggled really greatly. And then they barely kind of made the play-in series. They were coming in, and people just didn't expect them to even get past that first phase. And lo and behold, they end up in ninth or 10th place, walking home with, you know, 50 grand. So good on them. It was really, really fun to watch them, particularly in the big group play, because there were so many great teams that they took games off of. Even though they waffled a little bit, they lost some games they should have won. It was still great to see them, like, take on a tournament favorite like DK or something and give them hell. So that was fun. I noticed that Team Liquid did well against the Chinese teams, mm-hmm. much better than some of the other people. And uh, I think it's because they were just playing out of their meta. And, you know, they, they were going in with these super aggressive Muranas and uh, Skyrafts, and they would just catch, catch them out. And and then Kuefa would just do whatever. Like, you know, like he would just, he would get, he would get the space, he would get the Midas, and then he would just come in and sweep up afterwards. And that kind of... Death Bally team push would never w- wouldn't happen. Right, and uh, yeah. Liquid, I think during group play, only lost to two Chinese teams. It was VG and yeah, LGD. Yeah. They beat DK. They beat IG. Maybe. So they were they were very strong. You know, against against certain play styles. Then again, other teams just have Liquid's number, and yeah. one of them is Navi North America. They just for some reason Liquid can never ever beat that team. Uh, <laughs> and I wonder if Dota's a lot more like that than than meets the eyes. If if it's less about a team being a team's overall strength and more about the permeability of a team's play style like it could just be that the way liquid plays is always susceptible to the way lgd plays or the because lgd beat them in group play as well or, or the way yeah. w north america yeah, sort of like a rock paper scissors type thing yeah a little yeah. bit of that but yeah so uh one final thing because we uh, are running out of time unfortunately i want to hear some predictions who, who do you guys think is going to take it now that we are down to our final eight and you know uh, feel free to add some details on how if you if you have that level of detail who do i think is going to win it's probably going to be vc gaming because they look unstoppable. They they look streets ahead. VG, yeah. Yeah, VG. I haven't seen a play style that makes them look bad. They've been able to win early. They've been like when the game drags out, they were able to win late. Like they always seem to be ahead. Like when like after the fifth person gets drafted, you're like, wow, this is a, this is, looks like a VG victory. I, I think it's gonna take some type of miracle series to like knock them out. Because they look sharp, mm-hmm. so so I mean I'm, I I would love for EG or Cloud Nine to win. The, those are the ones dear to my heart. But VG Gaming just looks amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, who do you think is going to meet them in the final? Probably okay. So EG is going up against DK. I think EG can beat DK. So I think yeah, I think VG or EG is going to in VG finals. Yeah, uh, I could see that happening. That that would be interesting because if that does occur, they they basically play each other twice in a row. Cause, yeah. Uh, which which could happen, could very well happen, given these brackets. Cool. So, Steve, what about you? Uh, how do you think things are going to shake down? Yeah, I mean, I also think VG has as the largest edge, and I do think that they're probably going to win because of that same thing. That just like for me, the most fascinating part about Dota is, I, I mean, obviously the play, but like the drafting is so amazing. And like like this last game, I just we just watched, you could see that it was a newbie against IG, and newbie just like at the end after the draft, you're like, well, that's that. See, like that's that, that's that game. It's over now. So that's fascinating. I think like VG just in drafting so well, and then even on top of that, just everything is the timing is so good. The teamwork is so good. Like 
It just doesn't seem like anybody's going to beat them. But what I predict, and what actually no, not what I predict, but what I hope happens is that like the last four is EG, VG, IG, and LGD. Oh, <laughs> EG versus China. <laughs> yeah, EG. Yeah, I just like. America. I just like. America. <laughs> exactly. No, I just like. I just want all the G's in one place. We call it the G spot. Oh yeah. And then. <laughs> she's, she's oh, God. <laughs> and then I also predict that I'm gonna get fucking sick of Razor by like yeah. the first day. By uh, yesterday. By like yeah. oh yeah, so long ago. I don't understand. I mean. He's good, but like I just I don't. He, he, he never like makes a difference. He for needs me. he, he needs wins help. he wins lanes by himself. It, you just put Razor in a lane and he wins it. So he, he's really weak to AOE. Like that's yeah. that's the only thing that fucks him over. Like when people put up a bat against Razor in lane, Razor. Uh, it's funny the but, commentators but, are often like, I can't believe Razor's not doing better. It's like no, Bat Rider is designed to destroy Razor. Like yeah. he's he's really good at doing that. Uh, but, but, I mean, like, the thing is, is that Razor can go, he has a variety of lanes to pick from, and there's at least one person on the other person's roster that Razor will destroy. Yeah. He's just too useful. Mm-hmm. He is such a safe bet hero, and that's why you pick him first. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, pain he, in my ass is what he is. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like when people pick Skyrath. It's like, but Skyrath can be kind of coin flippy whether or not he gets, you know, he's useful in the first couple minutes, but he's never a bad first pick. And the people who get picked first every time are going to do well. And Doom is just going to get banned every time. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way. People have learned their lesson. You do not give a Doom. Yeah. Doom, is the, Doom is the bat rider of TI4. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. So I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb. I am going to say that the final. Uh, and this is a little bit of kind of what I hope it'll be. Will be DK and and Navi. I, I almost picked them. Not Navi. Navi doesn't look good at all. Here's the thing. Navi looks Navi bad. never <laughs> looks good in the international until the main event, and then suddenly nobody has an answer for whatever Navi's yeah. doing. Do you think that? Do you think that they were just kind of fucking around in the beginning? They I feel they, like they might have just been fucking around a little bit. They do today. that. They they seem to do that. They seem to be like, we'll do just enough. Just yeah, we'll, enough. We'll, we'll play Tiny Wisp and like, yeah, it's good, but that's not our like what you were talking about earlier. It's like that's not our real strategy. We're just yeah. kind of like having fun with Tiny Wisp because it's fun to have the boss battle, you know. And I really, I really think that's what it is. I, I could be off base, you know. Again, I do consider this a risk. Like, I, I Navi could very well <laughs> continue, out, continue to crap out as they have been, and by by as they have been, I mean compared to the other eight teams. Obviously, <laughs> they are incredibly good at Dota, no matter what. But no, I bet Navi. I, I'm I'm thinking Navi will turn on at some point, and they'll be like, oh well, no big deal. We'll just make the finals. They got um, one to figure that out. Yeah. They, well, they, I mean, they did it last year. Last year, same. I think they were in the same position, and then they yeah, were like, oh, okay, yeah. we'll just beat everybody. They went all the way through the loser's bracket, and Alliance went all the way through the winner's bracket. And right. The finals. And the thing is, like, I mean, it's kind of a safe bet in a way because they've made literally every international finals. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> so, Historical. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're right about them just kind of turning on. They're like, you know, they're like big game players. Like, yeah. once they hit the big stage, they, they, uh, they really do quite well. And again, they're exactly the type of team to do that kind of thing. We're just like, oh, yeah, that stuff we were doing earlier, that was just us messing around. Yeah. I'm what? definitely pulling for them, for EG and for DK, actually. DK is my favorite Chinese team. Um, they, 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 play, they play against meta, which is so nice of them. Yeah, that, 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 is, they, that, that's so cool of them. And Burning is so, like, Burning deserves yeah. a win. Like, that guy... <laughs> 
<laughs> a workhorse. He, he a plays workhorse. every carry in the game, and it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I that said, I I do worry if he's, he's retiring. He's go, He's done. Yeah, they said they said that last year. Yeah. Yeah. I do worry because IG seems to have DK's number. So if they run into each other, like it's one of those teams like DK seems to be able to smash everybody when they when they really put their their minds to it. But IG uh, except for IG. IG just like I think I I I may need to double check that data, but I think IG like the last several times they've met, I think IG has dominated them. So, yeah. have to see. All right, so on that note, we are going to throw it back to John and Michelle. Thank you guys very much for, for joining us for this, this segment. So, uh, yeah, we will we will talk to you again soon, I hope. And we're back here with John and Michelle for our Geek of the Week segment, how we wrap up every episode of This Is Serious Business, where we talk about things we've been watching, reading, doing, or playing lately that have nothing to do with what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes to an hour. Nothing. So, let's go ahead and start with John on that one. John, what have you been up to lately? On your request, Jeff, I checked out Strip Search on Penny Arcade, the webcomic competition show. And I've been into Penny Arcade like a madman for the last like week and a half. I've gone through the entire Strip Search series. I've caught up on, I mean, not totally, but I've, I've looked at a lot of Penny Arcade comics. And I'm about, midway, I'm about midway through season three of Penny Arcade TV. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's, that's been my jam for the last week or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those guys just, their, their, life, their life must be awesome. I really enjoyed the Strip Search show. And I think there's a lot of insightful stuff on not just making webcomics, but maintaining an online persona and doing conventions and things like that. But the the Penny Arcade series is really interesting because for maybe about, I don't know, 60 or 70% of the episodes is just Mike and Jerry, the creators, going through their process. Like they're talking, they'll start talking about a particular idea and then you see that start to coalesce into a comic and like what the beginning is, what the punchline is, and like it's all worked out in three panels. And then a lot of the other stuff is just like how the company is run and some of it ends up being some pretty poignant stuff. It gets into their relation, their personal relationships and friendships with one another. So for me, it's, it's really interesting stuff. Awesome, yeah. They have a make a strip panel at every PAX where they sit and they do their strip for the week live in front of a full audience and a- answer questions. Oh, that's awesome. it. that's it's, pretty it's, cool. Yeah, it's my favorite part of PAX, hands down, because they're hilarious. They're doing it a little differently now where they, they now take questions out of envelopes. They used to take questions just straight from the crowd, and people would ask them the most absurd things, and they, uh, they, would, they would humor everybody. Like, no matter what you ask them, they would at least, like, they would... It would be like, oh man, interesting, and you know they would they would yeah. they would respond to it. So that was really cool. But yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you've been enjoying that stuff. I haven't watched pretty much any of Penny Arcade TV. I think I watched a, maybe an episode or two once, but I did yeah. like Strip Search a lot. I'm glad that my recommendation was a good one for that. Cool. So let's move on to Michelle. Michelle, what have you been up to lately? So I just finished James Dashner's The Maze Runner. Ooh. So it is a young adult novel. It is kind of a post-apocalyptic story. And we follow a teenager named Thomas who wakes up in this mysterious place called the Glade. 
And his memory's been wiped. He has no memory of his previous life there or anywhere. I can't remember his parents, can't remember anything. And so it follows him trying to regain his memory and trying to figure out how to escape this mysterious place. I thought that the story was actually pretty intriguing. I certainly was kept wondering, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Very interesting. I wish I had a few more questions answered by the end of the book, but I didn't realize it was a trilogy before I started it. So now I guess I have to... Friggin' franchise now. In <laughs> I know. I actually, I actually just found out that this is going to be a movie. It's going to be oh, out this no year. Shit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But I didn't realize that before. Any any young adult novel, I feel like, especially if it's like a post-apocalyptic dystopian kind of. Go, yeah, it's like Catching. ripe. Yeah, exactly. Right now, but I thought it was a decent story. I definitely recommend it. But I feel like also if the second book of the trilogy doesn't answer any more of my questions, I might kind of give up on it. Because it's like a little bit less. I wanted more of a, a result towards the end of the book. But the story itself is pretty good. And I think as, as far as the movie is concerned, visually it's going to be incredible because it talks about this maze being these huge, like 100-foot walls that can move independently. And it's, it's really, really interesting. So I would definitely recommend the book. And we will see about the trilogy as a whole. Awesome. Yeah, let us know how you feel about the second one if you dive into it. Cool. So let's see. I have been watching this season of True Blood. Oh, you have? Oh, my God. It is a disaster. Really? It is like the worst television I've seen in my life. In a good way, though? Oh, my God. In the best way. In the best way. It is phenomenally awful. Um, Stephen oh, Moyer, who plays Bill, does not give a fuck anymore. <laughs> he, he swaggers into every scene and is like, acting. I'll show you guys some acting. <laughs> Sookie, my wife, how did it feel to sleep with that werewolf? Did it feel good? And you're just like, what is what is going on in this show? <laughs> and there's like angry ludicrous angry mob scenes where they like take up arms against all the supernatural people but then they're all like kind of humorously terrible at it and like people are dying left and right like they're killing major characters in like the least climactic manner um it's it's basically like the last season of a show and they're just like you know what let's see how far we can go yeah let's see what we can get away with Let's go all Game of Thrones on their ass. Yeah, it's well, it's not even that because that that would imply that there's some semblance right, of right, right. drama or structure to it. It's not that. It's more like let's just let's just improv a death right now. <laughs> all right. Oh crap! Uh, you know your contract's up. Can you just pretend you've been shot in the head and fall down? Great. Okay. Cool. We're done. So yeah, I uh, if you if you like watching things that are so bad that they're good, True Blood is the greatest show on television. <laughs> However, if you have no patience for that kind of thing, avoid this like the plague because it's truly awful, really truly awful. It's it's a show that breaks all the rules of good storytelling. That about wraps it up. At this point, I want to give you guys an opportunity to make any shoutouts and to let people know where they can find you online. Let's start with Michelle. 
You can find me on Twitter at Tracing Rays. Cool. Let's move on to John. On Twitter at Draw the Story. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Tisby Jeff. That's T-I-S-B for This Is Serious Business, Jeff. And you can find this podcast online at TisbyCast.com, as well as links to our excellent Tumblr, our Facebook, our MySpace, or whatever the hell else we have. And as always, I, I have absolutely no idea how to end this episode. Again, morbid question, kind of weird, but okay. I'm going to go there. I'm just going to go there. All right. Well, if if this if we are at a point uh, during this oh, break shit. where... Sorry, Marcus, please don't do that. <laughs> no, dude, I totally watched the wrong movie. I watched The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I didn't watch the other one. Oh. You didn't see the new one? Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, yeah, I watched the old one. How did you? <laughs> How did you? Yeah, because it was in the theaters, Marcus, so you would have known whether or not you've seen it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, no, I thought it was on iTunes already. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear, Marcus. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, dear. This is, a, this is quite the decision. Well, this is a Tisby first. And, and the reason I reacted that way to Marcus is that I thought he was still watching the International. I thought so, too. And I was yeah. like, I was like, Marcus, come on, man. But no, that wasn't it. At least it was a sincere, oh, God. <laughs> I, did, I did the wrong homework, teacher. I'm sorry. This is serious business. Etu Koba.